This, this evening, I am super excited to be preaching. We are back in our Ruthless series through the book of Ruth, where we've been journeying through this, this incredible narrative, this four-chapter four book in the Old Testament. And what is so profound about uh, this season is it, it brings up a whole lot of emotions. Uh, as I see uh, friends of ours getting engaged and celebrating weddings, I've started to remember what happened to me eight or nine years ago, something that I need to recount often, because it's, uh, I need to remind myself of the miracles God has worked. About nine years ago, I met my wife, Fiona, for the first time. It was a Sunday evening just like this. It was in a, a building, I'd like to say just like this, but not a 200-year-old building, but a, a more a normal, con, a conventional church venue. But I saw Fiona, I walked into church, and I saw her in the corner of the church, surrounded by a, a throng of handsome, well-built men. And they were all hanging on every word she was saying. And I just saw Fiona for the first time. My heart skipped a beat. And I saw her and I thought, you know what? I'm not leaving here until I've got Fiona out of that corner and into my corner. And I said, no, no, I'm getting out of that corner. And, I, and I, you know, I just had to flex my muscles, had to push. And, you know, just, I work out. And, uh, and I got myself to the head of the queue there. And as they say in the classics, the rest is history. But I want to just encourage you. Maybe you're single here. This is the place to meet somebody. I tell you, it's a good place. So if you're single, head to the corner afterwards and just say, hey, anybody, just any corner will do. Any corner will do. We'll just go for it. Yeah, there's, there's glory in all of them. But uh, we are very excited because from that moment, uh, I fell in love with Fiona. We got married. And as they say in the, in the, in the stories that we, we had a baby and uh, that baby's name was Olivia. And uh, a year ago, just at the beginning of lockdown, we got that phone call from her teacher. Yep, her teacher right there, front row right. Thank you, Kristen. But you know that phone call? You get a phone call from your child's teacher. If you haven't experienced this, there's having, that, that, having the, the, you know, the Jaws theme music in the background. This is terrifying when your child's teacher phones you in the middle of the day. It's terrifying. What has she got to say? And I remember answering that call, and, and Fiona and I are having this discussion. As Kristen told us, uh, your daughter, um, don't worry, but your daughter has gone all twilight on us. She's biting children. She's biting children. She's, go Team Edward, yay. Um, and we were like, oh, thanks for the great news. Wow, this is not a conversation piece I thought I would be having with my child. Why are you eating other children? But that afternoon, we took our three-year-old home. We saw on the couch, she, was, uh, she didn't know that we knew, you know, that we were in the know. And we sat her down, and she was smiling at us, those big eyes. Yes, mom and dad. We said, Olivia, why have you been biting your friends? And you could have sworn we just dropped an atomic bomb as she's only realized they know. They know. And these big eyes went big. The little lips started to quiver. And without her saying another word, she jumped off the couch, headed for the corner of the room and pulled the curtain shut over her. And she just hid there thinking, I want to shut the world out. I'm done. And in that moment, my heart as a dad grieved. I thought, my little girl, man, I want to go and rescue her from this moment and this pain. But before I could do that, I just almost felt in the moment uh, an understanding that this wasn't just a habit that three-year-olds do when they've been caught out. This is a habit that, that all of humanity does when they've been caught out, where they've been exposed, where they're feeling embarrassed, where they're feeling uh, running out of resources, when they're under pressure. The sociologists say that we'll do one of three things. We have flight, we have fight, or freeze. And I would say all of them usually happen with us all running to the metaphorical corner of our lives where we want to get our back up against, against the wall, pull the curtains shut, either fight our way out of it or, or just stay there and lock it down. But whatever shape or form, we get stuck in the corner. And I want to tell you that I really believe prophetically in this season that God is speaking to individuals but also to us as a church that it's time to get out the corner. It's time to get out the corner. Maybe you're here tonight, and uh, as Stu has been singing, as Aaron's been praying, but maybe for you, you feel like you yourself are in a corner. 
a corner financially, a corner relationally, a corner emotionally, and you're saying, the world doesn't know what's going on, but I, I feel like I just want to draw the curtain, I just want to shut it all down, but I'm just trying to keep my head above water, but it just feels like I've got my back up against the wall and there's nowhere else for me to turn. I want to tell you today that the voice of heaven speaks to you, it's time to get out the corner. It's time to get out the corner. So I want to help you today, whatever situation you find yourself in, to get out of that corner. And I want to tell you, we've got a different response. We don't have to just obey the sociologist uh, mechanisms of fight, flight, or freeze. I want to give us a fourth option, the superior option, an option called faith to get out the corner. So why don't you turn to your neighbor? We are charismatic people. Turn to your neighbor and, or somebody behind you and tell them, get out the corner. Come on, do it. Get out the corner. Jog at the back. Just get out the corner. And just if you are single and the person next to you is single, you can also just say, get out your number. So if, if you're like me, you need all the help you can get sometimes. But anyway, let's read scripture. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1 to 13. It'll be on the, on the screen behind us. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1 to 13 says this. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you'll be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with, this young, with his young woman. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley at, his th at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. A great sermon in itself, those three instructions. Take it if you need to receive that right now, in Jesus' name. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I'm one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well. Let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. Let's pray briefly. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us? Would you shape us? Would you make us holy by your word? And I thank you, God, as your word is preached, Spirit of the living God, would you stir our hearts not just to be, to be stirred, but I pray, God, would we be changed. I pray, God, would your ruthless love be here in, 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 grace, in, in great measures, and would your ruthless love collide with our ruthless worlds. Would you shape us? Would you change us? Would you mold us as you invite us to get out the corner? I thank you would do this in the powerful name. Amen. 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 A little bit of a recap of where we are in the series. The story of Ruth is this four-chapter book found in the Old Testament, the eighth book of the Old Testament. And it's this incredible narrative surrounding mainly at the, at the onset two characters, main characters. 
Naomi, a mother-in-law, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who are on their way back from 10 years, about a decade in a land called Moab, a land where they've experienced anarchy, where they've experienced famine, the hardships of famine. They've experienced people making bad decisions. They've experienced sexual depravity, and they've experienced death on a large scale, so much so that Naomi's husband has died, Ruth's husband has died, and they're having to not only just grieve, but now they're finding themselves at, the, at their wit's end. They're having to make big decisions for their own future. And what we find, they leave that place called Moab, and they go to a place called Bethlehem, back to Naomi's home, the house of bread, and they're on the way back to the, the place of God's presence where God had called them to. And in between that journey of leaving Moab and arriving Bethlehem, they realized at the end of chapter one that maybe they had physically left Moab themselves, but they hadn't, that Moab hadn't fully left them yet. So Naomi has to go on this journey of forgiving and, and dealing with bitterness. And then we come to chapter two, where these, these two unlikely characters put together, a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, trying to fend for themselves, stuck in a bit of a corner, trying to punch their way out as they, as they are immigrants from a, from a different land. They're having to go through home affair processes, death certificates, putting CVs out, trying to find jobs when they haven't worked for ages, don't know the, the political, social landscape, making new friends and the awkward conversations, all the while dealing with this grief and pain inside their heart from the last 10 years. They are literally and metaphorically in every shape and sense of the word coming in life from, this, from a corner. And in chapter 2, the Bible tells us that actually as it so happened or as according to God's kindness and favor, Ruth finds herself gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz. And gleaning is a principle in those days of what the, what the society would do for those who are poor, for those who are destitute, who did not have ways to provide for themselves, following behind those who are gleaning in the field, picking up the leftover wheat that was left behind for them, gleaning in the corners, the margins of the field. And as it so happens, it's Boaz's field, who's a close relative of hers, who catches her eye, and he ends up in chapter 2 even inviting her to eat at the table with, her, with him and the rest of the crew. And we find that Ruth finds favor with this man named Boaz. Now, what is so key as we pick it up from where we left off the last time is that if we, land this, if we landed the whole story, the whole book in the end of chapter 2, it's a beautiful story about a welfare and social justice system that has worked well. It's wonderful. A great story where somebody who did not have ends up getting some support, some financial aid, some food aid for the next little while to make it through for a little bit longer. But what I love about the Bible is, and this is a deep theological truth if you want to write this down, Ruth does not end in chapter 2. There is a chapter 3 after chapter 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Write that one down. It's deep, eh? Chapter 3 comes after chapter 2. Wow. This guy can preach. Yeah, true story. But what I'm, why, why, why that is a key thing for us to take note of is that I really believe too often we stop short, as the people of God stop short with good enough, we stop short with maybe this is okay enough, when God says, no, no, I've just not created you for okay enough, I've not just created you for a good chapter one and chapter two, I've actually got a chapter three for you. I've got more for you than you ever thought. I've got something more for you, and I don't want you just to neaten up your corner. I don't want you just to be able to have a great religious corner. I want you to come out of the corner. I want to move your story forward, and maybe this is prophetic for some of us that I really believe that God has chapter three stories for all of us, especially coming out of the year that was 2020, coming out of the season that was, that I believe that God is inviting whoever is willing to get out the corner at chapter three that is so glorious. And this is so huge for us. Well, how do I have such confidence? Well, because a widow from Moab who is gleaning in the margins and the corners of the field in chapter two, ends up 
owning this, that said field and being the centerpiece of this whole story. How does that happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I want to just remind us, this is not just an individual story. This is for us as a church, because I really want to tell you today that God says he's not created life changes city to be a church on the corner. He's called us to be a city on a hill. And this is a time for the church to arise and shine for her time has come. Her light has come. It's time to arise and shine and say, church, people of God, it's time to come out the corner. So we're going to get stuck into it today. I want to help us get a faith that gets us out the corner from this, these brief 13 verses. So three things that we need to know. Three things we know from these, three, these 13 verses, if we're going to have a faith that gets us out the corner, is number one, we need to have an obedient faith. An obedient faith. You see, chapter 3, a beautiful love story that starts to unfold at the, the start, the onset of chapter 3, is a mother-in-law, Naomi, starts to prep her daughter-in-law for, for a future and, may, uh, and helping her understand how to make a move. It's literally Naomi, the ancient equivalent of Naomi swiping right, right for her daughter. Just, it's, it's, she's saying, give me your phone. I'm, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this. She gives us all this advice, but what we need to take hold of tonight is maybe less the advice and more the response to the adv advice. Verse 5 of chapter 3, Ruth, on the back of hearing what Naomi's voice and encouragement to her is, Ruth says this one simple phrase, I'll do everything you say. It's a profound statement. I'll do everything you say. Now, it's not just some flippant remark. This is basically Ruth's character. She is a woman who has always been resolute in her convictions. A woman in chapter 1, if you flick a page back, you'll find that she said phrases such as, Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. This is a woman of convictions. This is a woman who follows through what she says. The woman of her word, and we find it again in evidence when she says to, in response to Naomi, saying, actually, I've put my future in your hands. Naomi, whatever you say, I will do. Everything. It's a radical statement, and I think it needs to jar us a little bit as the church in this, in this day and age that we live, because I want to strongly say this, that God has chapter threes for us. God has great futures for us. He's got financial breakthrough. He's got emotional well-being. He's got physical healing. He's got futures. He's got spiritual activation for us. He's got the ability for your life to count with significance. He's got the ability to set you free from the addictive spaces that you presently find yourself entombed in the corner. He's got that for you. But I want to tell you, desire is not enough. You see, if I did a straw poll, I said, who desires to be free? Who desires to have a great marriage one day? Who desires to have a significance in the workplace? Who desires for God to use them radically? Most of us will go, count me in. I'm in for that. But here's the problem. Desire alone is not enough. You see, for faith to be faith and not just wishful thinking, it requires its counterpart called obedience to give it legs. You see, faith plus obedience are the divine twins. And I'm learning this in a new way, and I'm picking on my little daughter today, Olivia Grace. She's four now, and uh, we are learning this thing called first-time obedience. See, it's, a, it's an incredible thing where I, I, I say something to my daughter, and what I would think would be a simple instructions is she interprets as an in invitation to get into the, a scene from the negotiator. <laughs> Dun -dun -dun -dun. Like, who's going to come out strongest here? You see, the story will go, often I'll make this statement, and, and I've realized this again. It's not just Olivia or four-year-old's problems. This is my problem. This is our problem as the, as, as the church of Jesus Christ in this day and age. When I say things to Olivia like this, I say, Olivia, go clean your room, love. This is what often happens, and it echoes the way we understand with our relationship with God often, is as I say, go clean your room, 
Olivia sometimes could say, and it's like as a, us as a church, Dad, would you mind if I just think about that for a while? I want to process that instruction. Actually, not just process, nay, let me pray about it. I want to just pray and see if it's my season to clean my room, Dad. Cool, Liv's cool, cool. Uh, go clean your room. Okay, Dad, no, I hear you, I hear you, but don't get pushy, Dad. You know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite a whole bunch of my friends around, my classmates. We're going to sit around. I'm going to get out a notepad. We'll get our brightly colored pens, and we're going to have a robust discussion on what it would mean, what would be the ramifications if we as a community cleaned our room. We want to get to the nuts and bolts. I'm like, Lives, clean your room. Dad, 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 you know what? I've just been reading up and got the, in the Greek and Hebrew lexicon, and I've been looking up what does clean your room mean in those different languages, and wow, you should see the Bible study I've done on clean your room. It's incredible. I'll say, lives, I don't care about all that. Clean your room. And I think that is not just a narrative for a four-year-old and her father. That's a narrative that plays out in our lives with our Heavenly Father way too often. When, the, when God has spoken an instruction, an invitation to us, and our response should be as Ruth, I'll do everything you say, we enter into negotiation mode. We negotiate our way, but we never find our way out of the corner. If you want to get out of the corner, you need to have obedient faith. Not just, and when I say obedient faith, it almost feels like an oxymoron, because I want to stress, every, all kinds of, every type of faith cannot be faith unless it is married to obedience. It it's almost seems so silly and trite that I have to say that, but for my own heart and my fickle heart, I have to remind myself that actually radical futures demand radical obedience. Demand it. They are, they are hand in hand. If you want a radical future with God, God, do something great with me. He says, cool, have a great response right now. This is how the Bible sets it up. And I, I want to say it as strongly as this. Maybe there's some people here today that you are been navigating a relationship whether it's one-on-one or whether even if it's on the phone or even if it's on texting, I felt so strongly that there's some people here who maybe you know that relationship is not of God, not right, it's not good for you, but you've been indulging and letting it just play on in the background for a little bit too long, but God is saying this, break it off now. Maybe you've even been praying, God, is it your will? I don't know. I'm not feeling so great about it, but is it? And God, give me a sign. Here is the sign. Stop it. Here's your sign tonight. Stop it. Break it off. Can I say it as strongly as this? Confess that addiction. Confess it. Don't nurse it. Don't rehearse it. Don't cover it up in the corner. If you want to get out the corner, bring it out into the light. This is how clear the Bible is. Repent of that abuse. Let go of that unforgiveness. Start being generous. Obey what he has already spoken. If you want God to speak more, obey what he's already said before. That's so good at rhymed. Like, wow. Did someone write that down? But all humor aside, I really want to remind us that it's the season to get out the corner, but it demands obedient faith. Secondly, not just obedient faith, but intimate faith. You see, as we keep reading, Ruth's story says in verse 7, Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. What a strategy. What a boss move. What a bold move by an, uh, an, a migrant worker, somebody from Moab, a widower who's got, can't, put together, can't rub two brass farthings together, has got no money, no, no reputation. She's a worker and she moves in at night onto the, in the, to the boss's place where he's sleeping and she slips in quietly at the bottom of his bed. What a move. Huge risk. Now, let me tell you, not a great dating strategy. Just take it on off. But, but what I do love about this is as it says, she came in quietly and covered his feet and laid down. Let me say this, faith doesn't need to be loud 
It just needs to be decisive. You don't need to have all the words or the right understanding or actually this is what I'm supposed to do. No, no. Sometimes we, we disqualify pressing into what God has for us and coming out the corner because we feel the vo- we've allowed the voices of disqualification to be loud. And we say, no, I've got to get louder qu- qualifications. I've got louder confidence. I've got to get louder boldness to be able to come to God. When God says, no, it's not about your loudness. It's just about being deliberate. And, and with that in motion, I want to tell you maybe somebody needs to hear this is that you and I were made, made for intimacy with Jesus. We were made for it. And the enemy's strategy is, to, is he is hell-bent to disqualify us from that, to separate you from that. He is content to keep you in the corner of religion where you perform all the duties, but you never come to his feet, where you perform all the things that you think you should do, but you never encounter him. This faith that we've bought into and a get-out-of-the-corner faith is all about intimacy with Jesus, intimacy with him. It requires risk, it requires exposing ourselves, it requires taking a step of faith. But again, I say it doesn't have to be loud, it just needs to be deliberate. But I wanna encourage us today, maybe you've got your back up against the wall and nobody knows it. Maybe you've got your back up against the wall and you, you financially, the pressure just ebbs away at your confidence every day. Emotionally, you are, there's something that's going on, a wrestle that's deep in your heart, an anxiety, a, a, a stress, a, a fear is eating away. You don't know what to do. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. When you don't know what else to do, throw yourself there because I want to tell you that is when we start to lay a hold of a get-out-of-the-corner type of faith, a faith that's obedient and a faith that's intimate. For time's sake, the third and final one this evening is an expectant faith, an expectant faith. You see, in, as the story goes on, it says this, around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. I would be too, but let me carry on. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me. You are my family redeemer. Can we say the word corner together? Let's try one more time. Corner, corner, corner. You see, when she said spread the corner of your covering over me, It's not the first time that we've seen that word corner appear in the brief four chapters of this book. It's actually the second time it's appeared, but maybe it skipped our notice because when they translate it, there's one of two ways you can translate it. It's been translated different into the English vernacular, different way each time. But the first time we encounter this word corner is in Ruth chapter 2 verse 12. And it's at the crux of Naomi, I mean, Ruth being in the field with Boaz and encountering the favor of Boaz. And Boaz, as her boss employer, gives, gives her a blessing from God over her. And this is what he says to, to Ruth at that time. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. See where it says that. May, may the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge, that word wings could have been translated corners. And the word when she said, cover me with the corner of your covering, could have been translated, cover me with the wings of your covering. Now, stick with me for a little bit because we've got to do a little bit of biblical excavation to understand the reality of this, is when we hear the phrase, uh, God will cover us in the shadow of his wings, we'll be right in in the prophetic literature to imagine that God has got these massive wings and we can find shelter underneath them. He, he he, He covers us in the day of trouble. That's fine and well and good. But for a Hebrew mindset, when they hear this word that may God cover you with his wings, may he overshadow you with those wings, they're not thinking a bird-like wings, they're thinking a garment. 
Why? Because in Numbers chapter 15, in the, uh, coming out into the wilderness, God gives instructions to the people, the Jewish people. He says to them, I want you to wear garments, these things called tzitzit, that you must wear, that at the bottom of them, they must have a blue cord running through it, and at the bottom of them, they must have tassels. They must have at the bottom of them tassels that are called the kanaf, which is the word corner or wings, to remind you of the faithfulness of God who has taken you out of Egypt and will lead you in the wilderness. At the bottom of the garment, you will have these wings, these corners that will cover you and will provide for you and remind you of my faithfulness. So when she hears this, when Ruth in chapter 2 hears, may the God you've come to find shelter, may he provide for you, cover you with the shadow of his wings, she hears that. So when she goes in in chapter 3 and says, cover me with your corner, cover me with your wings, in a sense what she is saying is, Boaz, you have preached to me and told me God will cover me with his faithfulness, and I'm coming to you to say, I'm not going to just let you preach to me, I want to see it in action. I've got an expectation, not just to see it in theory, I want to see it in deed. This is a powerful, powerful understanding this moment because I want to remind us that we are encouraged in Scripture to encounter the Word of God. If we want to get out the corner, it's not just as good enough for us to know the Word of God, it's actually it's enough more for us to encounter it, have an expectation that what is said in the Bible, God wants to become real in our lives. Let me say it another way, the New Testament way. One of the apostles writes, he said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. And let me say, the church, and this is a generalization, but the church worldwide have got caught up as keyboard warriors with a lot of talk, a lot of debating of scripture, people in conversation, hanna, hanna, hanna about this thing and this thing. What do we do about that person? And naming and claiming and pushing that person aside. And I don't listen to that person. What about this person? When actually God is saying, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's about power, seeing what only God can do. We can reason our ways, but we cannot ne never reason ourselves out of the corner. It demands faith and expectant faith to get out of the corner. This is really good. Thank you, Stu and Mish. I appreciate that. Let me encourage you one more way, a different way, that I really believe too many of us lower our theology to the level of our experience when God has called us to raise the level of our experience to our theology. What I mean by that is too, so many of us have read something and said, this is what God is like, but I've never experienced it. So we start changing what the Bible says about God because we actually don't, we've never re experienced the reality of it. Where God's actually saying, no, 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 hold up what I've called you to, but start to expect that I'm gonna meet you in that way. Let me say this way. We still serve a God who heals. We still serve a God who physically heals people. We still serve a God who physically provides in miraculous ways. These aren't just stories for the Bible. They're for us now. We still have a God who sets free in a moment. We still serve a God who takes people who've been battling with anxieties and fears and depression for years and generations who can in a moment encounter people and set them free. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. So today I say to you, getting out of the corner is not some metaphorical device I'm using in the sermon to keep you entertained. No, it is an encouragement, a command, an invitation from God. Get out of the corner of your sickness. Get out of the corner of your depression. Get out of the corner of your anxiety. Get out of the corner of your sin and shame. It's time to get out the corner, but it'll demand an obedient, intimate, expectant level of faith. Why do I have such conviction and courage about this? Well, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, we find one of the last phrases uttered in the Old Testament. 
And it's a phrase that is said to a people in the, in the, who have been wandering in the wilderness for generations, for people who are the people of God, have got all the promises of God, who've been told, this is what I want to do, but they've got stuck metaphorically and literally at times in the corner, whether it's in Egypt, under a press of Pharaoh, then get set free and they have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, a generation dying out. Then they get the Babylonians coming in and taking them out to a different foreign land and holding them captive. And again and again, they're saying, when will we see the breakthrough? When will we see the chapter three? It feels like we are perpetually bound from chapter one and chapter two, chapter one, chapter two. We never see the fulfillment of what God has promised us. But in Malachi chapter four, verse two, through a prophetic voice, the prophetic fulfillment is declared. And this is what it says. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. He will rise with healing in his corners. He'll rise with, wheel, with healing in the hem of his garment. He'll rise upon his people. An incredible declaration. But again, we see the fulfillment of this or an application of this in Luke chapter 8, verse 42 to 47. It says this in Luke chapter 8. As Jesus went, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Before we read on, I don't know about you, but that for me, that description of that lady is the description of somebody, is the, the apt description of somebody who's found themselves in the corner and doesn't know how to get out. It says this, a woman in the crowd, a woman in the crowd, an anonymous woman. It's so profound because if you read the narrative before this and after this, there are people who are sick who are named explicitly. But this story is just a woman in the crowd. Actor, stage right, you're playing the tree, that's it. Come in, thanks very much. And what's even more is three of the gospel writers include this story, and not one of them record her name. She is anonymous woman in the crowd. What's more than that is it says that she suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. 12 years of pain. 12 years of isolation. 12 years of being deemed unclean by the religious elites. 12 years of being separated from community. 12 years of, of putting dreams on the shelf. 12 years of not being able to take that job, not being able to take that opportunity. 12 years of not being able to bear a child, of putting off relationships. 12 years of, of, of being a lady who should never have been in this crowd in the first place because her place as a woman in the crowd, a woman who had been, uh, the issue of being for 12 years should have been in the corner. Says this, a woman in the crowd suffered 12 years with constant bleeding and she could find no cure. I love how the gospel writer Mark says, and this woman says, she had spent all she had on doctors, which is wonderful that Luke, the doctor, doesn't write it that way, but that's an aside. But I love how it says she could not find no cure. She had spent all she had on doctors. That means basically she has tried everything. She has wrecked herself financially, not just emotionally, but financially. She has, she has drawn her credit card to the max trying to find a solution. She's gone to doctors, physicians, to, to herbal healers, even done essential oils. She's done it all. She's tried it all. She's, she's just, help me. I need to try anything or everything. I want in. I need to get out of this. But nothing works. She's got no more money left. This is the woman in the corner. But this is what the story says here. She was desperate. In verse 44, it says, coming up behind Jesus. She touched the corner. 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 She touched the wings, the hem, the fringe of Jesus' garment. And in the crowd, a woman did, and the Bible says that immediately, immediately, immediately the bleeding stopped. 
A whole crowd of people that were around her. A whole crowd of people saying, what an amazing teacher. A whole crowd of people saying, what a great storyteller. A whole crowd of people are talking about, wow, trying to understand what Jesus was saying. and What does it mean about that? How does it apply to my life? That's wonderful. A lot of people were doing all these things, pressing around him. But one person saw that man Jesus and said, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. If I just touch that, I'll find healing. Only one woman said, I'm not leaving here in the corner. I'm coming out of the corner. This is so huge because what we, if we keep reading, Jesus says this in verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it. And Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, someone deliberately touched me. Someone obediently, someone intimately, someone expectantly touched me. There was a different response of faith found in this woman. And I love it because he said, for I felt healing power go out from me. And when the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, could not stay in the corner, when she could not stay in her isolation, anonymity, stay in her brokenness any longer, she fell, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Wow, what incredible story. An anonymous woman who had three gospel writers failed to even mention her name, but becomes the first person in Scripture that Jesus, the son of the living God, calls daughter. Daughter. If we go back to our Ruth narrative, we find an immigrant widow who moves from the corner of the fields, the corner of, of the welfare system, to the center stage and carries the life of Jesus and the lineage of Jesus in her womb. How does God do this? Because God says after your chapter two, there's a chapter three, but it demands a response, a getting out of the corner type faith that's obedient, that's intimate, that's expectant. And he says, I'll meet you there. 